This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Sandton Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Tino Madzingira, and it is my absolute pleasure to chair the session this afternoon. We are discussing, today's topic is where is the black box, uh, a group termination study to, to uncover disability trends. Uh, my colleagues here will be doing the speaking, uh, Neil Parking and Anya Case. Uh, Neil's the Chief Pricing Actuary at, at RGA South Africa. Um, and the last time he graced this stage, he was the second best speaker at the entire convention. So if you're wondering if you picked the right session, I can assure you that you did. <laughs> Uh, Anya Kays is a research and development actuary at, at RGA South Africa. She's been involved in three of these studies um, on, on group termination, so she's got a lot of rich insights that she brings to the table. This is the first time she's presenting at the convention, so I'm going to ask you to give a warm round of applause for her when she comes up. <laughs> so without uh, further ado, I'm just going to call up Neil Parkin. Thank you. Thank you, Tino. It's on. Are we on mic too? Hello? Oh, fantastic. Nothing like having sound to make a presentation work. So I want you to imagine that you're a pilot flying a plane high up in the sky. A vast array of buttons, dials, digital displays in front of you. Everything seems to be going okay. Until suddenly your system warns you something's wrong. Is it your altitude? Perhaps your speed? Perhaps it's an issue with an engine? The decision you make at that very moment will determine whether you, your crew, and all the passengers make it safely. And in turn, your decision will depend on the data that's in front of you. You'll have to rely on all those metrics that were predetermined to be put on dashboards. There's no time for a sexy GLM or a gradient-boosted model, thanks Mark, to, to decide what to do. You need to make that action straight away. Now, the group risk market has been through some pretty rough disability experience over the last two to three years, and in the same way, we've been navigating a, a pretty turbulent flight. Financial losses have stemmed from the product. Most insurers have felt the pain at some point or other, and uh, the prices have been really been increased over time. At, at one stage, it would have been inconceivable to have 50 or 100% increases in premium rates in the group market, and yet we've seen it. There have been some attempts to revise the product, although a lot of broker pressure has been pushed back, pushed back against it. Now, this isn't a unique problem to South Africa. It really is a global issue. Uh, disability has made a bit of a reputation for itself of breaking hearts and, and bank accounts. And so today, Anya and I will be presenting four chapters on all things disability. We'll kick off looking a bit at the product, and then we'll move into the study that we've done, sharing a bit around disability statistics and termination rates. And then lastly, we'll wrap it up with some of the implications and a few suggestions for the way we can do things differently. So let's move on then. Let's have a look at what the disability product looks like. So most of you know how group disability works. It is a, a quite a simple product. Uh, best way to illustrate is perhaps an example. So let's assume we got somebody, let's call him Henry. He was disabled, he had an accident in 1 Jan 2019 after a good New Year's party out. And um, what happens with a disability product is there's usually something called a deferred period or a waiting period. Really a good way to think about that is a minimum duration of disability. So in Henry's case, his employer had a three month deferred period, so he needs to be disabled for at least three months before his benefit kicks in. And that's exactly what happens. So in one April, if he's still disabled, his benefit, his monthly benefit will start paying. Now his employer has um, purchased it, so this is what his benefit would look like. Typically in the group market, we have a replacement ratios of around 75% of your income. So assuming Henry earns 10,000 Rand per month, he would have 7,500 Rand disability benefit. In addition, you might get a retirement fund contribution that goes gets paid to retirement. For hopefully when you reach normal retirement age, if you're still disabled, you would then draw down on that, on that pension. So looking at that, what, what does that look like? Well, Henry will receive the 7,500 Rand per month um, until, he, he can't, uh, until he doesn't meet the definition any longer. And, um, and essentially what happens with the disability benefit is that that continues to be paid until he can't work, uh, until he can, he can recover, 
and um, he, can, he can get back to work, or if he really can't rec- uh, get back to work, it pays until normal retirement age. Well, there we go, we're kind of catching up with us. And if he still can't work after 12 months, if the employer's also bought it, what happens is the product can allow for an annual escalation, so an inflation adjustment to, to the benefit. And uh, what that does is it protects the real value of his disability benefit over time, which is quite valuable when it comes to uh, long-term disabilities. Okay, there we go. It's slowly getting there. I think it's, it's uh, tied after lunch this morning. So then what we'd see is escalation comes in and the benefit would increase. Now, that's obviously an option. And um, the key things to remember from this are the three main drivers of disability cost in a broad sense. The one is number of claims you get in through the door. The second is the salary there, the 10,000 rand that drives the amount of the benefit. And then lastly, how long you pay the claim for. So duration is critical. And that's why we went into a disability study. Now, when I talk about disability income, you might use the word PHI, permanent health insurance. You might use the word long-term disability. It's all kind of interchangeable. The problem with that is the perception it creates is that disability is only a long-term disability solution. And the reality is it's actually a kind of combination. It has a long-term promise of protection if you need it, but in the first 24 months is where all the action takes place. In fact, almost half of all claims terminate by the end of 24 months. So really, there's a temporary component to it that's actually quite critical. So just like the black box is not actually black, you'll find that PHI is not permanent necessarily either. And what it does is in those first 24 months, PHI really provides what you could call a bridge uh, for if you can't work. So if you can't work, disability kicks in and helps you while you try and figure that out. So perhaps you're going for treatment and the treatment will take some time for it to work and you can get back to your own occupation. Perhaps you need to be reskilled or try and find an alternative occupation. And that's where these first 24 months are so important. And the claims assessors try and get in as early as possible so they can facilitate any changes that need to take place. So what did our disability study look like? Well, we had fortunately quite a lot of data. We managed to get 10 years worth of data starting from 2008 all the way to 2018, and it covered one and a half million exposure months and some 20,360 terminations. And that stemmed from about 53,000 claims, so really a solid amount of data that we managed to get. And it really was representative across the market. So we got it from six insurers. So thank you to the guys sitting in the audience who helped us with with all the data. We know it is quite a bit of effort and obviously all the queries so that we can understand the data so that our results are comparable and standardized across the industry. And what we're going to do today is share some of the results and insights from that study with you and, uh, and then sort of draw through the conclusions. And to start that process off, um, I'm going to hand over to Anya as she looks into the disability details and shares some of those statistics. There's that warm round of applause, Anya. <laughs> Thanks, Neil. Um, yes, so I will be talking in this chapter about the results for the, from the termination study, um, starting with uh, this chart that shows um, the proportion of um, claim cost, uh, of claim counts um, by cause of disability. And as you can see from this chart, um, the leading claim cause is musculoskeletal with almost a quarter of all claims coming from um, this condition. This has remained stable over the last 15 years. Um, the second one, other than unknown, the unknown portion is actually very small, it's at 3%, but we group some of the other minor conditions so that we can focus on the main conditions. The second leading cause is cancer, followed by neurological, and um, this has to do with your brain, your spinal cord, and your nervous system, and it includes things such as stroke and head trauma. And then um, psychiatric, that um, represents 10% of all claims by cost, uh, by count, um, and that's also always a very interesting one um, to look at from a claims management perspective. There are some interesting trends. Um, the graph before uh, just showed the, didn't show the full data, say just the last five years. Um, but there are some interesting trends we would like to focus on. And um, starting with HIV, you can see a clear decreasing trend. Um, HIV was an interesting one. In the early 2000s, we didn't see a lot of um, claims, only about 1%. Um, but as the stigma around the disease um, got some attention, and um, the ARVs got rolled out in 2008. We started seeing a lot of um, HIV claims, speaking at 13%, and it seemed to have come down um, quite nicely in the last period. This one is based on about 6,000 claims and also shows a slight decreasing trend. 
those two were now decreasing, so let's look at some of the ones that are increasing. Um, cancer, we hear that all around the market. If you speak to a claims assessor in the, in the space, um, they all tell you that, that volumes are increasing. Um, yeah. If we break it down by age, you can see that the, um, it increased. Um, from the previous slide, we saw that it increased quite significantly. Um, and if you look at the high and the low ages, you can see that it increased somewhat uniformly. But what about the rest of the shape? We see that the increase was not uniform at all, and there was quite a big bump in the mid-ages. So, for example, if you look at the 35 to 39 age bracket, you can see that the level increased from 9% to 13%, which is almost the level that we saw before for the over 55-year-olds. So, um, quite interesting results there. This was another interesting one. Um, this is by count, and it represents 4,700 claims. And um, if you look at the claim cost, it actually remains stable at 16% over the period. And um, it's quite interesting to note that, yeah, uh, probably there's an increased focus in managing these claims back to work, and that's why it remains stable. If we break this up by gender, we can see that the trend comes from females, with males remaining stable at 6%. Um, yeah, and I mean, in the, even in the 2003 to 2007 period, um, the, male, uh, the female rate was double. So you can see that um, the proportion of psychiatric claims was 10%, but uh, for the best industry, it's actually 15% for counts and 20% for costs. And this includes uh, financial services and professional lives. It's also interesting to note that the Canadian study had 30% uh, of um, psychiatric claims coming through for disability claimants. So it's also um, important when you look at psychiatric stats to um, remember that not all psychiatric claims get recorded as psychiatric claims due to the stigma around mental health. And if you speak to claims assessors, they will tell you that claims are becoming increasingly complex and that sometimes the claims start as a, a physical condition, but then it's, uh, the comorbidity comes through the psychiatric claim. And um, the challenge with that is that we don't always get the, um, the data that shows that um, the secondary cause. And um, yeah, we also don't get enough detail up front. Um, but if we can maybe consider this case study. Um, this was a 55-year-old male. Um, he was an operations manager and he was with his company for 10 years. He submitted a claim for neck pain and the insurer managed this claim um, with the HR consultant and the employer. Um, they had a meeting, had all parties involved and discussed coming back to work. But it was quite clear that this guy wasn't really motivated to return to work. And um, next, he submitted a report from his psychiatrist stating that the environment is too stressful and that if he returns to work, he will definitely relapse. And um, in the end, he um, became a long-term claim where um, yeah, it was just impossible to manage him back to work. So across all disability claims, we see that they typically last for six years and five months. In the shortest spectrum, we see HIV and cancer claims last for an average of three and a half years. On the longer spectrum, they last eight to nine years and includes conditions such as neuro, psych, and sensory. Sensory includes loss of sight, and these conditions are typically permanent. And uh, this graph is just to um, illustrate um, the extent of determination rates and how it affects the Book of Lives. If you consider 100 um, people that got admitted after a three-month waiting period, uh, we see that after seven months, 90 people are still on the books. And then between seven and 12 months, termination rates peak at almost 40%. And so this really also illustrates just how important it is to manage the claimants early, because if you don't get them early, it will be very difficult to manage them back to work. And then after 24 months, as Neil mentioned before, almost half of your claims have already terminated.
This slide just really shows average ages and average benefit amounts by month. Um, it's intuitive, I think, if you look at the causes, it's low for HIV and higher for psych and cancer. This again just shows the duration of disability and these all feed into the claim cost. And it's quite interesting to see that the site claim is very high cost of 1.6 million compared to the HIV cost of 330,000. I'm gonna hand back over to Neil. Cool, thanks Sonia. For me it's always amazing to see how, how expensive some of those claims are. So 1.6 million rand for a psychiatric case. So obviously we, we see the durations there and we can, we can guess and, and you might have some sense of why the durations are what they are. But let's have a look and see what actually causes claims to end. So there's really three reasons. The first is retirement. Now we don't generally consider retirement in our termination study because it's a natural end to the claim. People reach their normal retirement age so we haven't been able to manage them back to work and they haven't died, which is the other two reasons. So either people recover or they no longer meet the definition. That's all considered as a recovery in, in, these data, in the data and then lastly, they, they die. But um, if you look at our, our statistics, what we do see is that 61% of claims ignoring retirements actually end because of recovery, which is quite an exceptionally high level. And it goes to show you why duration management is so important and the effort that the claims teams put into it, because a small deviation in that percentage can drive up costs quite substantially. Um, so obviously that number varies quite a lot by condition and by age. And um, so let's have a look at that. So why they end before retirement? You'll see things like cancer, obviously as you'd expect, quite a high mortality rate, 65% of claims ending for cancer because of death, and a cardiac as well, so tending to be the higher uh, ages that we see for those claimants. And things like HIV, what an amazing turnaround. It's a, such a phenomenal story to see a condition like that becoming virtually chronic in many ways. 72% of claims ending because of recovery and, and sort of testament to the effectiveness of ARVs. And then down to psychiatric cases where of the cases that terminate, 85% is due to recovery. So quite a low mortality rate for them. Now, now the challenge with this graph, it kind of shows the proportions of termination. So you might walk away thinking that recoveries for psychiatric cases are pretty high and recoveries for cancer is quite low. Um, but remember, that's not absolute termination. So let's have a look at those recovery rates. Um, these are annualized recovery rates, duration of disability at the bottom, and we've used musculoskeletal initially just to show you, because it's the biggest part of the book, so it really does benchmark quite well. So it shows you 18% on an annualized basis of claims terminate in four to six months, and then slowly dropping off with duration of disability. And if we add other conditions to that, first of all, we see cancer, um, low recoveries in that first period after being admitted, but look at the recoveries between seven and 12 months, and, and that's probably, again, talking to the treatment regimes that take place, and then people are able to get back to work and, um, and recover from the condition. And, and it persists all the way to 24 months, being higher than musculoskeletal conditions. And then comparing that to something like psychiatric cases, you can see how low the recovery rates are. So yes, most claims at end are due to recovery, but overall, it's very hard to terminate uh, psychiatric conditions, which is why claims assessors uh, struggle with, with it in the first place. And then compare that to something like HIV. I mean, those purple graphs just shoot right up. So you really do see high recovery rates for HIV claimants. And again, talking to the, the treatment protocols that are in place for the, for the condition. So looking at it by age, um, we've chosen the duration of 7 to 12 months, but it's pretty much consistent across all durations. We see that termination rates decrease, recovery rates in particular, by age, um, which is probably quite intuitive to you. It, interestingly enough, for this duration disability, the death rate was fairly consistent around 12% on an annualized basis. So if you add 12% to these numbers, it gives you the total termination rate. So you can really see recovery rates are driving the shorter durations for the younger, younger people. So look at that, under 35, 48% 48 on an annualized basis. And if we compare it to the over 55-year-olds, you can see that means that under 35-year-olds recover at a rate of four times those over age 55. And even if we move to the 50 to 55 category, it's still a factor of 1.6 times. So really showing you the impact of age and on getting people back to work. So if you're a claims assessment team, you've got limited resources, this means a lot to you, right? Because you're gonna have to focus where you're the most likely to be successful. And that does really talk to your younger claimants. Of course, the challenge is that almost 50% of claims occur over the age of 50. We know that's when a lot of health problems emerge and um, it's not surprising to see the statistic. But still, you're gonna focus on perhaps the other 50% slightly more than you would on the 50% over 50 in terms of trying to manage back to work. 
So looking at it by income, because obviously there's some sort of correlation between age and income, we see a similar sort of effect with termination rates reduced by increasing income. So as the guys earn more, it's harder to get them back to work, except, of course, for the highest income bracket. So that provides a little interesting tick up where we actually see termination rates go up for the high earners. Now, that could be a couple of reasons that I'd play here. The first is that the claims assessor is going to pay a lot more attention to the big claims right. They're going to make sure that those big claims are, are getting sufficient focus and trying to manage them back to work, and perhaps the employers are more receptive to taking them back to work. The other thing to bear in mind is that disability income benefits are limited in the group market. There'll be some limited maximum monthly benefits you can get, which means replacement ratios are potentially lower. And if you add things like bonuses, if they are being paid, they're going to lose a lot of that when they are on disability. So possibly uh, the, the reduction in, in disability benefit compared to what they were earning before is, is driving some of that behavior here. And then looking at the cause of disability and income again, there's some interesting stats that emerge from this. So for example, almost a quarter of all claims for those who earn over 525,000 rand per annum are actually uh, for cancer. So quite, quite different compared to the lowest income brackets. And uh, very similarly for psychiatric cases, you see quite a strong correlation between the, the psychiatric proportion and income again. So 16% for the highest earners and only 6% for the lowest earners. So where does it make up the difference? Well, we see HIV and respiratory claims emerging quite a lot. And um, then cardiac, interestingly enough, is relatively stable, although slightly higher for the, for the lower earners. So if we do start thinking about critical illness-style products in the space, it's also quite interesting to know the different dynamics we're likely to see across income levels uh, emerging. And when we were doing the study, we came across sort of the female benefit gap, if we're allowed to call it that. It's obviously not a true benefit gap because there could be other factors at play. But consistently, we saw around a 19% lower benefit for females. Now, obviously, there could be certain occupations and things driving that. Um, but we did do a little bit of a, a, a deep dive here and look at it by age. And what we've got here is shows you the psychiatric claims by age and shows you the, the gender benefit gap. Initially, for the lower ages, it's actually pretty similar, the benefit levels. But as you go older, uh, all the way up to 38% lower for females as you reach over 55. So quite interesting. Uh, we obviously expect sort of gender pay gaps to exist, and it's, it's probably not too surprising to see it emerge in our data as well. Um, but these stats were pretty consistent across all causes. So um, definitely something there to, to explore a bit further. Then deferred periods, so remember I said at the beginning there's the deferred periods, about 70% of claims have a three-month deferred period and, and the rest are on a six-month deferred period. And if we look at terminations by a deferred period, we see different results as well. So that nice little orange line there shows you the six-month deferred period starting at around 23% termination rate for the year. And if we add to that the three-month deferred period, you can see how much higher the termination rates are for a three-month deferred period. Now, obviously, we expect higher termination rates for a three-month deferred period because claims that would only last for five months won't ever make it to being admitted under a six-month deferred period. But what we do see here is that that effect persists far longer than you might theoretically expect. So although you would expect that effect to disappear after perhaps six months, even at two years and up to three years, we still see some difference in termination rates. And it sort of begs the question of what's, what's driving that. We, did, we had a bit of a, a look into the data of who takes the six-month deferred period versus who takes the three-month. There is a slight bias towards lower earners, but that would actually drive the termination rates the other way around. Interestingly, there's a slight bias towards the lower occupation classes, um, what we'd classify sort of the construction, heavy engineering, those sort of cl occupation classes. And even more interestingly, the people who took the six-month deferred period were also less likely to take options like escalation which makes me think that it's probably a bit of buying behavior happening here. So guys are trying to buy down, reduce the richness of their benefits to try and save costs. And that could be indicative of, of the, the environment that the employer is operating in. Um, but either way, it highlights that your theoretical costing may well be quite different to what ultimately emerges in your experience. And if we look at escalation, so again, this shows now people claimants with escalation, remember that inflationary adjustment that happens on an annual basis to your benefit, versus those who have no escalation benefits. And we consistently see at all durations of disability that those with no escalation have far higher termination rates. We did control this for all sort of other rating factors and yet this effect still appears. It appears so much so that in fact those without benefit increases terminate at a rate of up to 47% faster than those with benefit increases. Which is, which is quite interesting and it sort of asks the question of whether there's some behavior that people know their benefits being eroded and, and whether this is really an option we should be offering in our group market. 
Um, and perhaps just to illustrate that point, so if we have a claimant, we'll, we'll call him Henry, um, because that, that seems to be a good name to go with today, and let's just say that he was disabled in 1990. So a little while back, when he was 25, he um, had an accident that's permanent, and he's disabled uh, all the way up to retirement. There's no chance of getting him back. Now, in 1990, he was fortunate enough that his employer had bought him a disability income policy that would pay him his benefit, and let's say his benefit could buy him a loaf of bread. So Henry was happy he had his benefit, he would be okay financially. What he didn't realize at the time, along with 15% of all the claims in our data, which is about 8,000 claims, is that he didn't have an escalation. So his benefit would stay fixed until he retired and then claimed under disability benefit policy. So if we fast forward to 10 years and um, we, we find that Henry is now 35 years old, he can basically afford only eight slices of bread. So this is what he has left. This is Henry's disability benefit after 10 years out of a loaf of bread. Now, Henry's obviously feeling a bit bleak about that, but if you think he's got problems, fast forward to the year 2019, he's, he's here with us today, and of these eight slices of bread, he can now only afford two slices at age 54. So we've gone from a whole loaf to two slices. And sadly for Henry, what he doesn't realize either is that in the year 2025, he will only be able to afford one slice of bread by the time he retires. Actually, it's 0.9 for the actuaries in the room, which is all of us, but because it's a crust, I'm just going to say it's one. So we've gone from a situation where we promised Henry a loaf of bread, and at the end of the time by he retires, and a benefit that's pretty much worthless, a single slice that, that we've offered him. Now, as an industry, as a product, I don't think we can say it's got a long-term promise if that's the kind of benefit that we're providing. And the reality is, that yes, it might save some cost, but there's perhaps other ways and better ways to manage experience than those people who truly need long-term disability benefits. And with that crumbs, I'm gonna leave Henry and uh, hand back over to Anya. Yeah, so uh, looking at trends over time, you see in the early 1990s, that termination rates were really low. And um, it was really because a medical doctor determined whether a person was disabled or not. In the 2000s, the approach changed significantly where claims teams often involve occupational therapists and nurses and OTs and termination rates increased significantly after that. And then we moved into the financial crisis in 2008. In South Africa, termination rates continued to increase which brings us into our latest period where we're actually seeing a decrease in termination rates. Um, this is a bit of a concern for us because it will drive the cost up um, and it's something that the pricing and valuation actuaries need to understand very closely. Um, but are they really reducing? I mean, um, if we look at recovery rate trends, we can see um, that it's also reducing, but it's um, at a different shape. And it's stabilized from 2015 at around 17%. And yes, we did control for mix of business, and the increase of the reduction is real um, for after controlling for gender and deferred period and cause and everything else. So, yeah, it's something to consider. Um, looking at the termination experience from the US, from the Society of Actuaries, we see during the recession that they definitely saw an increase, uh, a decrease in the termination rates. They also saw an increase in um, incidences, um, but um, it recovered after that. What was interesting to see there also was um, the difference between large and small insurers. They both um, felt the impact of the recession, but for the large insurers, it was much shorter and um, much smaller. Um, and it's probably due to mix of business, but it can also be that the claims teams um, and the resources for the large insurers were more able to handle the change or the increase in incidences. So for this one, um, we assume death rates are independent of economic conditions, and we use the BCI, the Business Confidence in Index, um, to determine economic conditions. And we see that um, the BCI is quite um, nicely correlated to recovery rates. And it's kind of intuitive 
if you think about it, um, if uh, the economy is doing well, there will be lots of job opportunities for climates to return back to work. We spoke to uh, the climate assessors and they mentioned that uh, it's been becoming increasingly difficult to get climates back to work and that employers don't really want um, to necessarily take them back um, in the same job and sometimes have to work for different employers. And um, yeah, even the change in definition, uh, which Bryce and them spoke about earlier, um, it's becoming more and more challenging. And we think it's the economy. Um, there are just not as many opportunities available. And we hope that the regulator might get involved here. And I think yeah, this is over to Neil again to wrap up for us. Cool. So I guess that's the question. It's the, the and then. So, so, so what? So in this next section, uh, in our final chapter, I'd just like to bring through a few of the, the sort of conclusions and, and touch on things like pricing and then some product implications and then lastly look at uh, what it means for, for data. So from a pricing perspective, um, we sort of talked a little bit about, about different benefits and things like escalation and deferred periods and how that affects uh, pricing itself. And I guess the, the key point here is understanding that our product design actually affects behavior and therefore behavior affects pricing. So when we are, are pricing things, it's all very well to do theoretical calculations, but we also need to understand what the behavioral impacts are on, on designing products in different ways. And perhaps just to bear that in mind when we are going forward, and perhaps those sort of numbers and the way we allow for differentials is, is not necessarily correct. And then secondly is trends. So what do we do with those trends? Now, it's, it's, it's difficult to ignore it when we see termination rates decreasing. It is a real thing. We see recovery rates dropping. And uh, even more worrying, you saw the correlation that Anya presented with the BCI, uh, the fact that the BCI is at one of the lowest levels in, in recent history. So that, that almost implies that we can expect a further trend of, of deterioration in termination rates. So that's not something we want to ignore, and we probably need to start thinking of how to bring that into pricing and valuation bases for reserving purposes. Often when we do group experience, um, just for, for big groups, we take incidence adjustments into account, but we still use the same reserving basis. So we need to start thinking about that differently and, and looking at it. Now, obviously, at company level, we haven't done an incidence study across the market, but you'd have to balance a trend in termination rates with any incidence adjustments. So you may see incidences increasing, and that will then have some impact on your termination rates as well. So, so bringing that into play. And then looking at products, so the, the lovely picture you have in front of you is a concept that Airbus actually brought to the market. It's a standing seat. So if you thought your, those of you who flew up from Cape Town thought that your, your flights were bad, um, well, yeah, that, it can get worse if, if the future is anything to go by, but perhaps it'll be cheaper. And I guess we have the same problem with PHI or disability, right? It, it's becoming increasingly expensive as experience gets more difficult, as the economy remains in a tough space. It's not going to get any better any sooner. So, you know, how do we adjust the product? And it's very tempting to make it, make it more, uh, I suppose, <laughs> cheaper in, in these sort of ways. Um, but we do have to be careful about what, what we do. Replacement ratios, we'll talk about that a little bit, but to be honest with you, that, that's something that will change change over time as cost goes up. When the tax change came in in 2015, there was a big push by the industry to try and move people to things like scales, which was doggedly refused by brokers and the market in general. And I think as costs slowly go up, that will be accelerated um, because there is some inequity between the higher earners and the lower earners from a post-tax uh, benefit point of view, and that will have to change. But there will be two product issues i just like to highlight that I, I think perhaps need a little bit more attention. And we've sort of seen it in some of the numbers that cancer rates are increasing, particularly um, in the more recent periods. So we need to think how our disability benefit evolves. Cancer's kind of gone from being the fifth highest claim cause to now the second most common claim cause in the market. So what is our product doing to evolve to respond to that? And if you speak to claims assessors, there is still some room here. So when we think of a traditional disability income product, what do you need? You need to be off work for three continuous months, and then the disability benefit kicks in, right? Now, with cancer, often treatment doesn't work like that. You go off, and then you go off for treatment, which is actually the biggest reason why you can't work, not the cancer itself. And then once you've kind of recovered from the side effects of the treatment, you can get back to work, and it's often quite good for the claimants to get back to work um, before you have your next bout of treatment and go off work again. So it's kind of short periods of, of almost temporary sick leave that is needed. And our disability product really doesn't cater for that in a coherent way. So is there an opportunity to rethink it, how waiting periods work, bring some of that cool critical illness thinking into the space, obviously mindful that we don't want to push up costs, 
but we do want to enable access to treatment and really let the product talk to the, the market that, that needs it. So perhaps lower level benefits, trying to do something in, in that space. And the second point is to really help our claims assessors. So what they do, you might think a cancer claim comes in, they stamp it approved, and then they leave it and wait for the doctor to tell them the claimant is ready to go back to work. In fact, that's not the case. The claims assessors do an amazing job of trying to get people back to work. They coordinate with their manager, they coordinate with the doctors, making sure everybody knows what's going on, what is the plan for getting back to work. And that's a key part of actually making sure somebody's able to get back to work. Obviously with cancer we do see things like a secondary psychiatric complication, things like depression, treatment is pretty harsh. And once you've been through that, it's not surprising that some of our claimants see sort of struggle mentally uh, from, from the condition. Interestingly enough, what the claims assessors will tell us is that doesn't happen initially. Once the claimant has been through an assessment, uh, through, through a recovery process, once they're almost getting ready to go back to work, what's happened to them really hits them. And it's then that the depression hits in. So what the claims assessors do is make sure that they have access to social support, which uh, many of you will know that is a firm favorite of mine, in terms of getting people back and healthy again. It's a key driver of that. But social groups, um, support groups, Claims assessors refer claimants to those groups and enable them to get the, the sort of the, the psychosocial part sorted out so that they do have that support right from day one when they do are able to recover and get back to the work they do. Otherwise, what you do is they slip into much longer claims than would otherwise be, be necessary. And then what we're seeing, obviously, linked to that is mental health generally. And you're not going to escape this. I think most talks at the convention are either going to be about something sexy like artificial intelligence or mental health. And that's because as much as we, we've traditionally tried to hide away from it, we'll talk about things like, can we cut out psychiatric claims from our product? Let's just pay them for 12 months. Um, we're not going to get that right. It's not going to work. And for people with genuine psychiatric conditions, there's no reason to have that distinction compared to somebody who gets a physical condition, right? So from a product perspective, everybody can tell you about the claimants who, who fights the system, who claim for depression when they're not actually and could be working. We know that. But there's a broader shift in society towards poorer mental health and anxiety. And it's something we need to recognize. Psychiatric claims are going up, particularly for the females. So what's happening there? What in the work environment is not facilitating people at work? Uh, we often think that the sort of gender story has been sorted, more women are coming to the workplace, but has the workplace evolved? What's driving that? And what we do see overseas, particularly, is that group insurers are playing more in the wellness space than ever before. In fact, Unum in the UK is a great company to Google if you want to have a quick look. But they, they do some pretty cool stuff, and they get directly involved in the employee's mental wellness, knowing that if they can prevent claims, it saves their claims assessors a whole lot of headache in trying to get them, get them back to work. They even have the mental first aiders. Um, so, so there you go. Have a look at that. But this is a space, as group insurers in South Africa, we can't leave it to the medical schemes and to employee wellness programs. We need to start influencing its direction now. So, th so this, this picture here is an image of an actuary extracting data. So for those of you who've done historical experience studies, you know what this feels like, right? You try to open that jar that just won't open, and when you do, there's a floppy disk that probably doesn't connect to any known device anymore. This is the story of our lives. We see most of our experience studies trying to do data cleaning and da sorting data out. Um, but this is not really the way it's going to work in the future. So there'll be some, some wonderful data analytics presentations this, this week um, and talking about machine learning and, and cool sort of forest, random forest walk things, which I don't know what they are. But the reality is we need to pause because none of that works without data. So unless we get our data better, um, we, we're not going to go anywhere. And, and we look at black boxes and what do they do? They record data, they tell us what happened at the time of an accident so we can get closure, but they also tell us about what we need to change going forward. And we need to think what our black boxes in our industry are recording and whether that data is enough. And I think the answer to that is no. We need more data, we need better data. So if we look at uh, flight MH, the Malaysian airline MH370 that, that disappeared in 2014, you, you probably all know the story, it just disappeared off radar and it was one of the most expensive uh, searches to find the plane, which, which never actually found the whole aircraft in the end. Um, and most of the public were astounded to find that although you can track your car, you can go into apps and see where your car is, it's still parked where you left it, um, you can't do that to airplanes, right? We don't have real-time tracking. And following MH370's disappearance, a lot of international sort of group task groups have been set up to try and enable more real-time tracking of aircraft. 
obviously using the full set of data that's captured by the black box is currently technologically difficult because of the level of data that's, that's uh, captured. You can't just bang that off to a satellite. But there are moves to try and track aircraft in more real time so that we don't have these sort of situations emerging. And much like the group risk industry, if you look at it, getting exposure data is pretty tough. And if you want to do a real proper in-depth analysis, it's not going to be in real time. It takes a lot of effort. And with PPR, I think there's a lot of room for us to do better in that space. We're going to have to start capturing data. We're going to have pretty impressive records. So why not start building data structures that enable almost real time, we will go with pseudo real time for the beginning, data collection where we can do these analyses and have those dashboards while we fly in this plane to see what's happening with our experience. And I think. Once we have that, we'll start getting other rating factors. We'll have ID numbers. We'll be able to link to third-party databases and start doing all that cool data analytics that we all want to uh, for those future actuaries. So the other, other aircraft uh, disaster to worth, worth mentioning is the Boeing 737 MAX. Now, this has been quite topical in the last couple of years. And really what happened here was that Boeing introduced automation to the aircraft. And automation is a risky prospect at the best of times. And this automatic feature was aimed at preventing stalling. So when the, the plane does something wrong and it's going to stall, this corrects it. Unfortunately, some of the sensors were faulty and fed incorrect data into the automation process, so it just wanted to keep pushing the plane's nose down, which ended in two fatal crashes. Um, the pilots struggled to, to correct it, but they couldn't override it, and automation ultimately killed all the passengers. And, and why that's important for us as an industry is because we're moving swiftly towards more to automation. And we need to make sure that we're getting our data right and we're getting the right variables. And we have to ask ourselves, are we? And I think there's some more room we can do here. To be honest with you, when we look at claims assessment packs, all the data is there. The, the claims assessors do a fantastic job of capturing all the information. But if you try and get into a database, it's nowhere to be found. Uh, the first spot might be something like, what medical information, what, what medical data can we use? So at the moment, we have broad categories of medical information. If you ask me, sort of, what is the schizophrenic component of psychiatric claims across the market? I have no idea. And I'm sure many insurers don't have that information either. So we can definitely do better, because the claims assessor knows it. It's just how do you capture it and put it into a useful position. And then I just talk about the comorbidities. We need to start capturing that to understand in depth what's driving the claims from a medical point of view. And then for me, even more exciting is the non-medical data. We need to understand more of a person. People are not just the medical model anymore. We know that there's a whole lot more that drives people. If you understand, are there retrenchments at the employer? How does the employee-employer relationship look? Is it good, bad, ugly? In many cases, we find that it's quite ugly, and it's pretty hard to get people back to work when the employer is not on board. And then things like social support, I'll mention it again, but that's quite critical if you're trying to get back somebody back to work. What support do they have at home just to help them? Uh, things like motivation, we talk a lot about that. What is a claimant's motivation if on day one when they submit the claim, they're not listed to get back to work, you're going to struggle to get that claim back to work regardless of their cause of disability. So really what I'm saying is we need to start moving from the sort of medical model to a psychosocial model, including far more about the claimant and, and being able to use that to predict in a far better way. At, at a recent seminar we had, Graham Codrington said that data plus data analytics or artificial intelligence enables personalization. And the future of claims assessment is personalization. And that means understanding a whole lot more about claimants. Another aspect that we can use this for is triaging. So which, which claim to, claims assessors spend time on? You can look at age, cause of disability, but that's really not enough. You need more information. At RGA, we built something called Morgan, which is that cute little um, icon there, that cute lady. And what we did with Morgan was we built some of these factors into a predictive tool. And as our data gets better, and as the industry's data gets better, machine learning can start to feed in here to automatically update these models and help us predict even better which claims need greater intervention from claims assessors, and ultimately helping make the whole product more sustainable. So it brings us back to the original question. Where's the black box? We've got some great data from the industry, make no doubt. And hopefully we showed you some interesting stats, and we didn't kill you with all of our graphs but you're still here, so that's a good sign. But that's been fine and fit for purpose for now. The world is changing. What we want to do is changing. And as the saying goes, what got you here isn't going to get you there, and I fear that it won't even keep you here. So let's, as an industry, work together to build the black boxes that enable the future. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Neil and Anya. Uh, amazing how much information you managed to fit in a couple of minutes and explain it so, so clearly. We've got 10 minutes for questions, um, so I'll open up the floor. Uh, just, just raise your hand so I can see you. Okay, so Anya, I think we've got mics in the back. Hey, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, so just for uh, Neil and Anya, just uh, two questions on, the, you know, some of the data that you showed us. A lot of interesting stuff there. So, on, I mean, firstly, uh, do you guys see psychiatric as the biggest threat to us in the industry? Just because even though it's not the main claim, of course, you know, they seem to be very sticky, last very long, high claim costs, you know, focused on the higher um, socioeconomic side. And then second question also related to that is, um, for psychiatric specifically, this is a lot of this is all obviously focused on the termination side. But do you think there's anything more we could do on maybe the rating side, like in the same way that we do a blood test, medical, you know, to find if someone's at higher risk of certain illnesses? Do you think there's anything we could do on the rating side to find if someone's at a higher risk of becoming a psychiatric claim? I'm actually going to stand, Imran. Well, I, I think psychiatric conditions are particularly worrying uh, due to difficult questions asked by co-workers at conferences. And anxiety is high. Um, I don't think psychiatric conditions are necessarily the biggest threat. I, I think we need to think carefully about the whole sort of way work is going. And, and mental health and mental wellness fall into that. So, and I think for me that's really about a secondary layer of complication. So whatever your condition is, in a difficult economy where work is stressful, everybody's stretched, you know, that's kind of psychiatric, but it's preempted by sort of a more physical condition. And, and I think those are kind of quite interconnected as opposed to a pure psychiatric condition. Um, depression, schizophrenia, things like that. So I wouldn't be too worried about that. And we've seen the cost be pretty stable. My worry is more the longer term trend about wellness in the workplace and, and focusing on that and, and trying to play a bigger role in that space so that we can control it better. Uh, and you mentioned the 30% of claims are due to psychiatric conditions in, 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 in uh, Canada and we see sort of big numbers in Australia as well in the UK. So no doubt as sort of our socioeconomic classes potentially lift, we'll see more psychiatric cases. Um, and so your second question was? Um, if there's anything more we could do on the rating side. On the rating side, on the group space, not, not massively, uh, other than digging into third-party databases, I, I think, um, be a bit of a challenge. Uh, I think for me the opportunity is, is in getting there in the wellness space, first of all, and then secondly, once somebody is a claimant, understanding them, and almost in that way rating them, understanding all those sort of psychosocial factors so we know really where their risks are. So if you, if you do have a psychiatric condition, you know, how motivated are you to get back to work with somebody who isn't, um, and trying to manage them through, through that process. So I think there's definitely more information we can know at that stage. From a group perspective, I suppose we could link to third-party database and get all fancy, but, but generally that's probably going to be a bit more challenging, I think. One here in the front. Hi, Neil. Um, given where you saw the trend start going down in terminations, do you think it corresponded with the change in tax legislation? That's a good question. Uh, we, we debated this a little bit. So if you look at the overall termination rates, it's clear that they started declining prior to 2015 already. 2012, yeah, so it peaked in, they sort of peaked in 2012 and overall termination rates dropped. If you look at the recovery rates for the first three years, that's when it sort of dropped in 2015 and remained stable. So possibly there is a tax implication there that as sort of tax, you know, the tax fed into the higher replacement ratios, those termination rates responded. It feels quite quick to have responded. Um, but still broadly, if I had to hazard a guess and put my name on, on a block, would be that the economy is driving a lot of this behavior. And, and I think it's what we see uh, a lot of around getting people back to work. In the past, you know, an employer would work with you, labor legislation supports alternative occupations, accommodation to work. Now you go to an employer, it's like, you know, fantastic, I, I can cut one head count and everybody else can pick it up. So I, I think that for me is, is sort of the underlying problem. I think the tax change feeds into that and the employer's going, well, okay, if you really don't want me back at work, it's cool. Um, so I, I think there is that sort of interplay. I'm sure it's adding to it. Uh, I don't think it's the whole story though. 
I think we suspect that the incidence has um, increased due to the tax change, but we unfortunately didn't analyze that data. We've got time for a couple more questions, if there are any. Thanks very much, guys. It was a really great talk. Um, Neil, I really liked your idea about the cancer claims and the income protection product supporting a return to work. And I think what we see um, is a reluctance to go back to work because you might lose out on your, your benefit if you're not really uh, fully fit to return to work. Um, have you seen uh, any other clients or the insurers speaking about such um, product changes? Um, because what, what, what I've seen on maybe the critical illness side is a lot of support for cancer um, in terms of the counselling side. Um, but if the, the benefit payouts is not, um, I guess, married to that, that, that uh, sort of uh, thinking, um, it might fall short in the, in the income protection space. Yeah, I don't think we've seen any insurers that really play directly in that space. Obviously, people offer critical illness benefits, um, but as we know, the group market, it's only like 2% of premium, so it's really not sold well. Um, we do think there's an opportunity for things like voluntary critical illness may, may see a bigger take-up. Uh, but I think this is sort of saying the assessors are kind of hacking with the product and making it kind of work with sticky tape and, and glue, but perhaps we could do something a bit more proactive and actually get in there and, and design a bit more specifically for cancer if it's becoming such a, a dominant force. I, I don't think so. Um, and, and I think you're right. I think there's an amazing support systems and assessors are doing a lot of that informally. It's just how do we perhaps structure it and, and really optimize it and make sure that all claimants, claimants get it. So interestingly that, that you said we talk about cancer, when we looked at it by income, obviously we saw that almost a quarter of claims for cancer are for the higher income earners. Uh, we thought, well, obviously we're going to see that cancer recovery rates are different for different income levels, right? We'd expect the higher earners to have better access to health and treatment. And, and what we saw is that termination rates, both deaths and recoveries, are pretty much flat across income levels. So it, it didn't vary, which was quite surprising to us, despite access to medical care. Um, but but that, so that was quite an interesting, interesting play. So, so obviously there's something happening in the background uh, driving all of that treatment. I'll ask a question. Um, I mean, we've, we've had a lot of uh, pressure as an industry to pay claims that we um, didn't think were valid claims, but being sort of pressurized by the media. Do you, do you see some of that translating to uh, the terminations uh, work that, that you're doing? Yeah, I, I, we do see a little bit. So, I mean, our claims says will tell us that they threatened to go to the ombuds, uh, threatened to go to the media. We do find because there's a broker and an employer involved, they, they tend to push those buttons first, so the broker will, will throw his or her toys out of the cot and threaten to move business. So because you've got that employer relationship um, and, and there's HR is often involved, it, it's, a, it's a broader conversation, I think, before it just gets to social media. So compared to the retail market, perhaps there, is, there are a few intermediate steps um, between, between them now. And again, you know, you find your sort of high earners who claiming tend to have a little bit more of, of that push. And, and they might resort to things like that a, a bit sooner. And, and generally, they have psychiatric conditions, which which makes those those claims generally a lot a lot tougher to to handle. We have time for one more burning question before we close. Anybody who's been saving up that really tough question for Anya? Okay, so I think we'll, we'll leave it there. Uh, give you guys a few extra minutes. Um, so thank you, Anya, again. Thank you, Neil, for a great talk. Uh, <laughs> we've got some bread here if anyone's interested. Um, <laughs> if the tea isn't up to scratch, there's bread here. <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us. Please come chat to us if you want to discuss anything further. Uh, Neil and Anya's contact details are up there, so add them on LinkedIn or send them an email um, as, as you like. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone.